Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. The road can be playground. The road can be a school or the road can be church. And when I say church, it could be synagogue, mosque, temple, or just a place where you're thoughtful and you get away from home and you learn about your home by looking at it from a distance. You might recognize that voice. That is none other than the travel legend, Rick Steves. If you haven't heard about him, where have you been? He's one of my travel heroes. He started his business, Rick Steves Europe back in 1976. Since then, he's been producing best-selling guidebooks, a popular television show on public TV, a syndicated travel column, and free information all aligned with his core mission to help people get out and travel Europe. Rick has had a huge influence on me, both personally and professionally. His recommendations helped to shape some of my early trips to Europe, which ultimately led to my living a life filled with travel and my work to help others travel the world on their terms right here on the podcast. So needless to say, he's been a dream guest for me, and it was an absolute honor to get a chance to chat with him and to get a chance to share this conversation with you today. It's a wide-ranging one. Among other things, you'll hear what Rick learned from his first time off the road in decades during the pandemic, why Rick was encouraging people to rip out pages of one of his guidebooks at one point, how chronocentrism can help to inform your travels. Best lesson his parents ever taught him, which also doubles as some great business advice, our mutual love for stolen sandwiches. <laughs> You'll hear about that. His thoughts around ethical travel in the era of climate change. Rick's advice for getting out of your comfort zone as an experienced traveler and loads more. Plus, I'm going to share my personal highlight of this conversation and my all-time favorite Rick Steves recommendation, one that really helped me discover a new passion that's been a part of my life ever since. So a ton's going on today, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. It's happening right now. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. Now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. And what else can I say? Travel legend Rick Steves is on the show. 
I could not be more excited to bring this one to you. Before we dive in, I will give you a heads up. There is a moment in this conversation, one of my favorites, where I give Rick a teleportation device. We know those don't exist unless there's one stashed away in Area 51 somewhere or something, but a hypothetical device that allows him to zip around Europe instantaneously without having to take planes and trains, and he gets to have breakfast wherever he wants, wake up where he wants, go to lunch, have an activity, and do it in any country. And because he's so well-traveled and so knowledgeable and such an expert on Europe, I couldn't wait to hear his answer to that question and boy did he deliver and what a treat to hear him so eloquently describe the moments on this hypothetical day and and the places and he really takes you there and that's what he's known for right being able to communicate to bring to life a destination and to do it with such eloquence Uh, he does it in his tv shows and his guidebooks everything he does and it was just such a joy to to hear him describe that day and let him kind of whisk you away with just his words. So be on the lookout for that and loads more in this conversation coming at you right now. Stick around on the back end if you'd like to hear my favorite all-time Rick Steves destination recommendation, one that I heard about through him. I never would have ended up in this place without hearing about it from Rick and certainly changed my life for the better and allowed me to discover a passion that I had not known I had had and just another of the many things I have Rick to thank for. So uh, stick around for that. And for now, please enjoy my conversation with Rick Steves and I will see you on the other side, my friend. So a dog is the best companion at home, but not necessarily the easiest thing to manage when you're traveling a lot. Well, especially when you're a traveler. I mean, I never planned to have dogs, but I fell in love with a, a girl who's got, who had two dogs, and suddenly I had two dogs. <laughs> How's that been for you? Well, it's been great. And it, during COVID, it was wonderful because I learned the beauty of dogs. I never, I never understood that before. I just didn't even respect people who walked dogs. (laughs) (laughs) And I I have to admit, uh, now I realize what an idiot I was. And uh, it's just, it's beautiful to have a canine friend around. But it is complicated when you travel. That is for sure. And one reason I've never had a dog is I'm I'm pretty practical because I'm kind of workaholic and I spend 100 days a year in Europe. And the last thing I want to do is worry about a dog when I'm worrying about updating all my guidebooks or leading tours or making a TV show. And now you have a dog you love that you have to leave, or two dogs sounds like you love that you I had two dogs. One of them died, but we've still got one, and one is gorgeous. You know, the cool thing about COVID was his chance to learn there's other things you can be passionate about. And when you're locked up, if you're a traveler, you, you try to employ that traveler's mindset at home, and you have that curiosity, and you get out of your comfort zone, and you dust off old passions, and you try new things, and you want to carbonate your life in ways that travel carbonates your life, even though you're not going anywhere. That helped me get through COVID. Uh, and I had a pretty decent couple of years of lockdown. And But now we're getting back to travel with a vengeance. Was it during COVID that you were doing the, the, the morning trumpet blast to the neighborhood at home? I think I saw that on CBS Morning or something like that. Yeah. Were, were you doing that at one point? I was. It's a tradition. I still do. It's not morning, uh, Jason. It's uh, sunset. 
And if there's a nice sunset, I've got a view across Puget Sound of the Olympic Mountains. And when the sun goes down, if it's clear uh, and it's a beautiful sunset, I, I just can't help but grab my, my trumpet and stand out on the deck and play taps. And I try to time it so that when the last little ray of sun dips behind the mountain, I run out of breath on the last note of taps. And I was doing it during in the scary part of COVID. And it was a a nightly ritual that summer of 2020, you know, all across town, people would whoop and holler and clap. And it was a way we all checked in with each other. <laughs> and uh, I really uh, love to do it. So if I'm all alone on my deck, and I still do a little a little jig after I play taps, it just fills me with joy. I've started it up. We've had a couple of good sunsets so far this year. So what's this? This is the 20, 21, 22, 23, the fourth year, the fourth summer during this COVID and post-COVID time. Yeah, it's just a reminder of that we have a community and we can celebrate our environment and we're all in this together. One of the things I love when I'm home, and I mean, this is a big threat in your work too, right? Is like, is the opportunity to give people an experience that they'll remember. And, you know, oftentimes, I guess when we're traveling, we're getting that from other people. And then when you're home, it's such a joy to be able to like gift that to people that are coming through your town. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Right. Well, that's kind of the, our middle name now as a tour company. That's the biggest part of my business is taking a thousand tour groups around Europe every year. And I've got a hundred wonderful guides in Europe. And the goal is to give people experiences, experiential travel. Every meal is an opportunity for a lifelong memory. Uh, and if the tour guide's on the ball, you'll have lifelong memories. If the tour guide's slacking off, it's just a another bowl of spaghetti, you know, so that's the challenge. And it's, as you said, it's the same thing here. It's fun to, it's fun to make memories. Well, I should give you a little bit of an introduction, even though my guest today needs no introduction. I'm going to give you a short one anyway. I would say you've been the world's greatest ambassador for travel. So your wildly popular TV series, guidebooks, and group trip offerings have been getting armchair travelers up from their seats and out into the world for over four decades. In short, he's a legend. You can find his work at ricksteves.com. And you've been a huge inspiration to me, Rick, and I am thrilled to have you here. So I've been waiting to say this for 10 years since I started this show, but Rick Steves, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. <laughs> nice to be with you, Jason. I don't know what took you so long, but now we can talk travel. I know we're already into it, but sometimes I slack off on these intros. You know, I'm based in Oslo, Norway, and I know you have a strong connection to Norway. So I wanted people to hear about that because that was a sound like a pretty important moment in your life. Oh yeah, I've had great experiences in Oslo. Three of my four grandparents came over on the boat from Norway. My mom's parents homesteaded up in Edmonton, Alberta, and eventually got down to um, Vancouver, BC, and then Seattle. And my dad's dad was a wild and crazy womanizing drunk ski jumper in Leavenworth up in, in the mountains by Seattle from Norway. And uh, he was a crazy Norwegian guy. And um, I just really treasure my Norwegian heritage. On my very first trip to Europe, my parents took me to Germany to see the piano factories because my dad decided he was a piano tuner. He decided to import pianos from Germany. And then we zipped up to Norway to see the relatives. And what a what a beautiful thing, Wherever, whatever your family heritage is, to go back to the old country and see relatives is just great. And I was behind the Royal Palace. You live in Oslo, you would know Frogner Park, filled with these beautiful statues by Gustav Figland. And they're all naked, nude, 
concrete statues of people doing different things, young people, old people, families, kids, screaming babies, you know, whatever. I was just embarrassed by the nudity. I got over that. Uh, and then I was just enjoying the park with my mom and dad. And it occurred to me as a 14-year-old, my parents were just, I remember looking up at them, realizing they didn't have a lot of money. It was their first trip ever to Europe. They were compromising their travels greatly to have me along, and it cost them a lot of extra money, and they couldn't do all the things they wanted to do because they had this kid with them, kind of a high-demand 14-year-old kid. I realized my parents were just loving me. And then I looked out at the park, and it was it was like a eureka. It was speckled with other families, other parents loving their kids who didn't even know I existed. And it occurred to me, wow, this world is a lot bigger than me. And it's home to billions of equally lovable little kids like me. That sort of stuck with me a long time. And then much later, I met a philosopher in Oslo called Eric Daman. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he had a political movement in Scandinavia called The Future in Our Hands. And he was so trippy out there, so progressive, so ahead of his time. And this must have been in the 1980s, Eric Daman. And there were actually parliamentarians in Denmark and Sweden and Norway that were part of this movement. And the whole idea is we have enough material wealth. We can be satisfied materially and we can get into things that are more important. And my Scandinavian friends really are tuned into that, I think. Of course, they're blessed because they're so well off anyways. But they just tune into the finer points in life, I think. And they they work together, they trust their institutions, and we can learn a lot from Scandinavians. But I was the the American representative of that movement for a while, the future in our hands. I don't even, I forget the word in Norway, but um, I, I visited him like somebody going to a guru in, on a mountaintop in, really? in Tibet. I went to <laughs> Oslo and, and I just sat at his feet and got to talk to him with all of his other devotees. And uh, Eric Daman was a great man in Norway. Wow. Now I have to look him up. I had not heard of him. Yeah, it's interesting that idea of being an ambassador for something or sometimes when you're traveling around Europe, you're almost like a mini ambassador for the entire country of the United States, even though you don't want to be necessarily. It goes both ways. And <laughs> right. I, I always think about that. Plus, I've got I'm burdened with the fact that I've got some notoriety. People know who I am. So I'm on, I have to be on my best behavior. <laughs> Is that hard sometimes? I mean, yeah, it, it well, must be. Well, it's if I let's say I'm going through TSA and I'm just in a bad mood because of all this security, you know, I can be a little bit, you know, of a smart aleck or a smart ass. And, and then I get up to the final TSA guy and the guy goes, Hey, Rick, I like your show. And then I feel like a real jerk because he likes my show and I don't, I don't like his security. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, you're human. It's like, you I'm human. Like I'm human. I love meeting people who like my work on the road. It's the greatest thing about the work I do is I get to see immediate people with my book in their hands people with my app in their ears, people with their dreams that were shaped by a TV show they watched, you know, people that are reading from my book, my art book to their children in front of, you know, some great piece of art in the, in the Uffizi gallery. And uh, so I get to see that. I'm always happy to chat and get a selfie with people or sign their book or whatever. But if I'm working on a TV show and I'm, I'm trying to memorize my lines and the sun's going down and we're just kind of stressed out because this is now or never, we got to get this thing in the can. And somebody wants to talk or get a photograph and I say, no, I'm working. Sorry. That gets me in trouble because uh, I'm short with them, but I'm, cause I've got a job to do. So that's, that's, that's an interesting dimension of this, but generally it's a, it's so much fun because I can walk into a restaurant in Europe and I, I, I can look at people and 
and kind of know if they've used my book or not. There's just a look of people who have a Rick Steves book. I don't know what it is, uh, but they're they're temporary locals. They're convivial. They're not demanding. Uh, they're they're trying new things. I just find they're having a great time. I can walk into a restaurant and kind of go, hey. And they go, Rick, and they pull out their book and I, I can talk to them about how their experience was in that restaurant. And it helps me immensely when I'm researching my guidebook because, you know, when I'm researching my guidebook, I got to visit 10 or 15 restaurants in an evening. I can't eat in all of them. But if I can, if I can chat with somebody who's, who is eating there and find out how's the experience, that person's going to get a bit more realistic experience than me. Because if the restaurateur knows there's a guidebook writer, they're going to pull out the the red carpet for them. But these people just came in and they're just either they're easy money or they're an honored customer, you know, depending on the philosophy of the restaurant. And if I says, How, how's the meal here? And they go, oh, we've eaten here three nights in a row. We love this place. Thanks for listing it. Well, then enough said. <laughs> it's, in, it's in the book next year. You see, that's, that's really good. On my formative first backpacking trip, solo trip through Europe, that was like the big deal thing for me that blew my mind open. I had Mona Winks with me and I, I played tour guide with my hostel mates. I, I got to admit at first they were like, what is this guy doing? Like, why is he walking around reading from this, this guy? Rick you Steve's book? had Mona but, uh, Winks. Wow. I had Mona Winks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just went up in my estimate. You've been, you've been with me for a long time. I mean, you know, you can only travel with a couple books. So right. I mean, that was, well, that was one of did them. Did you so. rip it up? Did you rip it up? Uh, I think eventually I had to start pulling things out. Because this is a big book. It, what, yeah, just yeah. for your listeners, um, Mona Winks, the subtitle, I think, is Europe's 20 Most Exciting and Exhausting Cultural Obligations. Self-guided walks. Self-guided walks to Europe's most exci uh, exciting and, and uh, exhausting cultural obligations. And I said, you don't want to carry this big 500-page book with you into the Louvre or the Prado or the British Museum or the Rijksmuseum. You want to rip up the chapters. And people just go, I can't rip up the chapters. The book is a tool. If, you, if it gives you one good a museum experience, it's done its duty. And the rest is all bonus. And they still didn't want to. I said, okay, if you rip up the book and use it and send me back the pieces with $5, I will mail to you a whole new book intact. So I did that as a kind of a publicity stunt for many years. But Mona Winks passed away. Rest in peace. But it lives again in my app, Rick Steves Audio Europe. Oh, really? And, there, okay. there are, and you should check it out, Jason, because it's the same tours. I mean, in some cases, exactly the same tours that have just been, they, they went into the guidebooks from the collection of tours. These are self-guided tours. You know, it's the, it's the, the Caesar shuffle, the walk from the Colosseum through the Forum up Capitol Hill, and then over to the Pantheon. That's a great walk. And as a tour guide, you want to walk people with that and explain them what's going on. And as a guidebook writer, I can give that tour in the book. And as an app producer, understanding people don't want to have their head buried in a book, you can read essentially the self-guided walk and put it into an app. They plug you into their ear, and then they do the walk with, with me whispering in their ear the whole time. That's what the app is. I just spent the last two seasons updating that app 61 and just last week we finished it and it's free and it's uh, rick steve's audio europe and it is self-guided tours it's mona winks in its digital reiteration and it's so fun i just love it because uh, i get a i get to take more people to my favorite places uh, you also have the the entire six hour series i believe on on art in europe so i i do have some questions about art and and music and all that but well, I just got back from Rila Monastery, actually. I was there last week in Bulgaria. Lovely place. I know you did you had it in your in your Bulgaria show. Yeah, I was just wondering for you, 
how much does spirituality or your, like your personal beliefs play a role in your travels? You know, I think it plays a huge role. First of all, I think as a teacher and a tour guide and a writer, I have an advantage. So much of Europe is based on church history, the Vatican and religious wars and all sorts of, you know, it permeates European art. If you didn't have a respect for that, you'd have a tough time teaching it. I mean, if, if you think Roman Catholicism is just a joke and you take a group into St. Peter's Basilica, I don't think you're going to be that great of a guide. I'm not a Catholic, but I'm a Christian, and but I'm just a, I have the same respect for a synagogue or a mosque or a church. I just love to embrace local. To me, religions are just people trying to figure out how to get close to God. It's a cultural thing. And I'm not into condemning other religions. I just want to get close to God. And my heritage is Norwegian, so obviously I'm a Lutheran, you know. Um, so that's just the way it is. It just makes the culture of Europe more beautiful to see that 500 years. Don't I'm sort of into this thing. I just made, made up a word called chronocentrism. We got ethnocentrism. And people know what that means. You think your, your ethnicity or your culture is the, the norm when it's not. And then chronocentrism is trying to look at everything through 2023 eyes. And I think it's important to look at things in the proper context historically. To you know, look at St. Peter's not as something made by a church that has a problem with a bunch of pedophiliac priests that took a lot of money away from poor people in order to build this razzle-dazzle dome, but to think of it as the most beautiful space they could build 500 years ago to glorify God. You have a choice how you want to step into St. Peter's. But for years, I stepped into St. Peter's as an angry Protestant, and I was just pissed off when I was inside that greatest church in Christendom. And then I realized, hey, wait a minute. Why don't I just park my Lutheran sword at the door and go in as a temporary Roman Catholic? And uh, it was a whole different experience. I just work really hard, whether I'm in Sri Lanka or Japan or um, Jerusalem or Germany or the Vatican, to be in the proper mindset. Who paid for this and why? What was going on? You know, you can't go to India and think a billion Hindus are, are clueless. There's got to be something to that. And I just don't get it, you know. But I, I don't want to be condemning it or disrespecting it. So, yeah, I think that's a very important mindset when you're traveling. And I think it's helped me a lot in my, because I've, you know, you can't, you can't write a guidebook to Florence and the Renaissance without understanding that, you know, when you're looking into the eyes of David, you're looking into the eyes of Renaissance man. This is not a shepherd killing a giant. It's more than uh, one city rising above its bully city-state neighbors, with David being the mascot. It is humankind stepping out of the Middle Ages and into the modern world. It's a recognition that the best way to glorify, it's a new modern movement, much more secular, but it's not a repudiation of God. I think it's the, just an understanding that the best way to glorify God is not to bow down in church all day long, but it is to recognize the talents that God gives you and then to use them to make the world a better place or make your family happier or whatever. That confidence is humanism. I love the idea of humanism. And to me, humanism is David. Humanism is the Renaissance. Humanism, so many things, I mean, I always think of the class of 1500, you know, I talk about that in my books, and uh, it just is, it, it's amazing to think that all these guys were doing their thing at the same generation. 
Leonardo, Machiavelli, Martin Luther, Gutenberg, Albert Durer, uh, Medici's, uh, Michelangelo, uh, you name it, all of these, uh, Columbus, uh, all of these characters in, in the story of Europe were the class of 1500. Uh, there was a lot going on then. And it was that transition from medieval Europe to modern Europe. And you can condemn every one of those people that I just mentioned for certain things. But if you go back 500 years and you understand what was going on back then, you go, wow, what a heady time. A lot's going on. And they knew each other. A lot of them knew each other, which is really cool. What do you think happens when you die? Nice light um, question for the morning. There you Rick. go. That's Yeah, right. <laughs> when you die, we, we won't know until it happens. No. But, but uh, I believe in a soul. So I just believe there's more than just, um, you know, 95% water and a little bit of whatever else there is. I can connect with that really vividly when I use the road as church. The road, the road can be playground, the road can be a school, or the road can be church. And when I say church, it could be, could be synagogue, mosque, temple, or just a place where you're thoughtful and you get away from home and you learn about your home by looking at it from a distance. I just had Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez in my living room here, and we cooked them dinner, and we did a, uh, a little bit of filming in Edmonds. I'm just north of Seattle, half an hour, right out of the blue. I didn't know Nor Martin Sheen even knew who I was. And his favorite thing is to say, keep on traveling, which is the way I end my shows. And I didn't even know who Emilio was, because I'm not that, I'm a little too old to know the Brad Pack or whatever the, uh, those guys are called, you know. Did you tell him that's uh, your line? He, he can't steal line. your no, line, Rick. I gave him my T-shirt. I, I, I wore <laughs> his Jed Bartlett for President T-shirt when I interviewed him for my radio show. And then I gave him a, uh, the, our Keep on Traveling T-shirt. But the, but the fact is, and this relates to what we're talking about, Jason, they did a movie 10 years ago called The Way, which was um, this great movie about um, uh, the Community Santiago, the pilgrimage trail across northern Spain. Long story short, Martin Sheen's son in the movie didn't want to fit the mold like his workaholic, successful doctor dad. And he went off to do the Camino. And his dad was kind of disappointed in his son. And the boy died one day into the hike. Martin flew over to Spain to get his body and bring home the ashes. And Martin decided to do the hike, the trek, the Camino that his son set off to do. And it was a life-changing experience for Martin, who was an eye doctor in California. And when he got all done, instead of going back home after hiking for 30 days, he went to Morocco. And uh, it was his springboard, uh, this Camino. And it was kind of cool because the, it took that experience for the eye doctor to learn how to see from a traveler's point of view. And uh, they, they called me out of the blue because they're re-releasing the movie next month. And um, it's going to air in a thousand theaters. And they wanted to make the movie 15 minutes longer and include at the end of the movie a conversation with me. So they made a pilgrimage to Seattle and north of Seattle to my little town. And we sit down in a pub and we talk about the value of um, travel as a pilgrimage. You know, there's, there's, there's three kinds of travelers, I think. Um, tourists, travelers, and pilgrims. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, travel as playground, travel as school, travel as church. And um, you don't need to do all one or all the other, but it's nice to realize you got an option. You can mix it up. And I like to put a little bit of pilgrim in there, whether you go to church or not. <laughs> we'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. 
Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. I chatted with somebody recently who um, we had that whole conversation around being pilgrims, you know, how much it's changed uh, if you look at those trails and what they were traditionally, or I should say historically, and what they are now. And and the majority of people that are walking them are on their own pilgrimage for another reason that isn't even at all related to uh, necessarily to what the trail was originally intended for, which is kind of, there's one here actually in my backyard that I'm dying to do called St. Olaf's Ways. Ah, that runs yeah. uh, all the way from Oslo to, to Trondheim. Yeah. Well, Mohammed said, don't tell me how educated you are. Tell me how much you've traveled. And of course, one of the five pillars of Islam is to do the Hajj, go to Mecca, right? If you're a Muslim, you're supposed to try to do that once in your lifetime. But progressive Muslims have explained to me, you don't need to go to Mecca. You just got to get out and travel. That was the reason. Back in the old days, they said, okay, go to Mecca. But the point is, get away from your home and do it thoughtfully. That's what pilgrimages let us do. So today, if you go to the St. Olaf's Way, or if you go to the Via Francigena, or if you go to the Community Santiago, all these great pilgrimage trails, it's not just a bunch of Catholics carrying a cross uh, and chanting, and there is some of that. I mean, it's pretty dramatic when you do see that, and we filmed that. But it's people that they're angry at the church. They're just sorting things out in their lives. There's people that are broken for all sorts of different reasons. There's people that are workaholic nine-to-five London big shots that can't get 30 days off, so they do it in three 10-day installments over three years. I've never met anybody doing the community Santiago who wasn't changed by the experience. 
as you said, most of them are not religious in a conventional way, but they're, I think they're all searching, about, they're exploring. Two years ago, I hiked around Mont Blanc, uh, and that was an amazing experience. And just to be on the trail for all day long, and just to sit on a ridge and eat a sandwich you stole from breakfast, it's one of the most beautiful feasts you could have. It's just fun to be on a ridge and, and raise your arms to the heavens. And of course, the stolen sandwich. It's always sweet because it's always wrapped it's in a napkin so, and you're like yeah. picking paper off of it, you know? <laughs> You've been there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was there when, last week. <laughs> when I was, uh, that's one thing I always, I have no problems, just between you and me, I hope nobody's listening here, but I got no problem stealing a sandwich from a $200 a night hotel room and you go downstairs. All I want is just a roll with a little cheese and a little ham on it. And I'm not doing it because I can't afford a sandwich. It's just I'm busy all day long, and I don't want to sit down at a restaurant and spend an, uh, you know 45 minutes and 20 bucks on a sandwich. I just want to munch a little sandwich halfway through the day. It's perfect. And I, you have a little Ziploc baggie, and you you wrap it in that little paper towel, paper napkin. And a, a real nice breakfast room only has cloth napkins, and I can't bear to take one of them. So it puts me in a little bit of a bind. And then you happily pick off the bits of um, paper uh, napkin from your cheese and your ham, and you feel really good eating that, don't you, at lunchtime? <laughs> Absolutely. You mentioned the Mont, Mont, Mont Blanc trek, but have, have you done other sort of personal trips that have kind of been transformative to, to you? Something that's uh, maybe a little more private? Yeah. My, my big transformational trips were going to India as a kid and taking the hippie bus from Istanbul to Kathmandu and then going down to Central America back in the Sandinistan Contra days in the 1980s. Um, and that lit the political fire in my belly. And traveling to India just reminded me that Europe is just the waiting pool for world exploration. Um, I wrote a 60,000-word journal when I was 23 years old in uh, 1978, uh, the year I graduated from college. And I, I went with my best buddy from on that it was a coming-of-age trip. Every It was the ultimate backpackers thing back then, was to go on a, you know, just kind of hitchhike or take a bus from Istanbul all the way across Asia to um, Kathmandu in Nepal. And I, I wrote this book, and I forgot about it. I wrote it um, in a hard-bound, empty book, and I filled it up, and I took beautiful photographs, and then I just tucked it away. And I had not opened it for 40 years. And during COVID, I opened it. It was amazing. And... Uh, I started reading it, and this is before I ever wrote a travel book, and it was it was really good. It was in the rough. It was a lot of juvenile kind of writing, but it was very um, intimate and introspective and thought-provoking, and um, I was jotting down all sorts of vivid experiences with the vocabulary of a college kid, you know, and this kind of thing. I was keeping my staff employed during two years of COVID. I have 100 people on my payroll, and we had no income at all but I wanted to keep them together. It was the right thing to do as an employer. And also I wanted them to be here for 2023 when we come out of this thing and we're just busting. And um, I was looking for projects. So I asked my book department to type up this journal and we'll make a book. So I made this book and it's not available for sale, but I use it as a thank you for pledge work on public television. You know, It's a, an amazing book and it's called The Hippie Trail from uh, Istanbul to Kathmandu. It was sort of like an anthropological dig into a 23-year-old Rick, Rick Steves. And uh, it was fun. It was really a, I, I just don't know why I would spend a couple hours every night writing this journal when uh, all the other kids were out there having more fun. And then it, 
it survived. I guess I was a travel writer in training. What a magical gift. It's easy to be judgmental of your earlier work at any stage, I feel. And then you have to remember that I try to remind myself at least that that work is, it's, it's a special moment in time. That's who I was then. And that's what I could do then. And it says something about yourself at that moment in time, but like, who, who knows what, but. <laughs> do you remember as a kid show and tell, like in yeah, third yeah. grade? Yeah. So Monday, if, if I remember correctly, Monday morning, you'd have show and tell. And the teacher, fun thing, all the kids would get together. What'd you do this weekend? Oh, I have this. And here's my little butterfly and oh, any experience you had. And for a lot of, a lot of us, I think as adults, travel can be like, there's a lot of show and tell dimension to it. Um, I always use that metaphor for going into a cheese shop in Paris. You know, if, if a cheesemonger in Paris has a chance to turn an American onto fancy cheese, they're going to jump at that if they, if, they're, if they love their work. Because they know that for me, cheese is not a big deal. It's orange in the shape of the bread, you know. And then I get over there and I realize this is a sort of a festival of mold, this cheese shop, and he wants me to try this. Um, that's a cool opportunity. And a lot of Americans are offended by somebody who's trying to impress them with their culture. And I remember, don't clench your fist and say, no, we Americans do it good too. They're not trying to be better than Americans. They're just excited about something, just like a kid was excited about something at, at show and tell on Monday morning. And they want to share it. They want to share their culture. If somebody comes to Seattle, I'll take them down to the marketplace and the guys will toss the salmon around. And it doesn't mean we're better than you. It just means we love our salmon and these guys are entertainers. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> What has writing taught you about yourself? Writing, for me, is a fun challenge because I, I wrestle with ideas. And it's, I get this notion that there's something here, but I don't know how to say it. And when I write it, I, I, it's, you have to crystallize the idea. You got to organize the thought. You got you to prove that thought with these words. So writing helps me get something figured out. Like, what's the ethics of traveling in a warming world? You know, sh should we be flight shamed out of our travels? You can make a case for that. But for me, and I think for you too, there's a value in travel and there's a cost to travel to the environment. What I want to do is not be, not, not stay at home because I think the challenges confronting us in the future are going to require people with a global perspective, nations working together, respect for uh, other nations and uh, good governance and an appreciation of the beauty and fragility of the environment. And uh, when you travel, you get that. There's a value of travel. And I think if we're going to be thinking of the ethics of travel in a warming world, and again, I'm talking about this struggle more fundamentally, How do you, what's the value of writing? Um, I've been writing and figuring this out. You need to maximize the positive of travel. You need to get out of your comfort zone. You need to have transformational travel. You need to come home with a broader perspective. That's the most important souvenir. And so you're going to maximize the benefit of travel, and then you want to minimize the cost of travel, which is environmental. And you do that through mitigation. You travel in as green a way as you can, and then you pay for the carbon you create by creating that much good carbon mitigation. And mitigation is just arithmetic and science. I mean, you got X bad, you got to create X good, and then it zeroes out. It's nothing heroic, nothing to brag about. It's just you pay for your carbon. So that's, um, I've been trying to, to explain this. We need to travel and we need to be mindful of this 
existential threat of climate change. And we need to maximize the good and minimize the bad. I like that idea. I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm thinking about chronocentrism. It's kind of a way to deal with um, this political correctness these days where a lot of people, oh, it's, it's a rape scene. How can you celebrate a rape scene? Nobody is saying rape is anything other than tragic and horrible, but it was a myth 2,000 years ago, and they did a statue of it. Um, you know, do we want to judge it by 2023 eyes, or do we want to look at it in the proper context? And that's that chronocentrism thing that I'm thinking of as we deal with challenges of how advanced we are today in our sensibilities. Um, and that's a dicey thing to talk about, but I'm working on it. Yeah. And, and the writing helps crystallize it, like you said. I, I, I just want to give you a shout out for uh, the climate smart commitment that Rick Steves Europe has put out there because you guys invest $30 for each of the 30,000 people the company takes on European tours every year. And I, I mean, when I saw that you announced that, I really appreciated it because, you know, you have to lead by example. And travel and tourism industry, it's not to bring it back to Norway, but I feel like that's something that Norway does well as well. Like it's a small country. It's like, well, how much of a difference are we going to make if we take all of our cars out of the city center? Okay. Well, it is going to make a difference to the air quality here, but it's also somebody's got to lead the Somebody's got to lead. Somebody's got to um, be an example for others. Somebody's got to show that it's uh, not only workable, but it's good. Of course, Norway, Scandinavians always seem to provide those kind of examples. And that's an excuse for America to take it seriously. And then when America does it, that means other nations follow just because they want to be in good with the United States. Um, you know, when it came to third world debt relief or any number of things, you know, um, if the United States poo-poos it, other people poo-poo it. If the United States takes it seriously, there becomes an, uh, a whole um, momentum that's created that's quite important to be mindful of. And, you know, if you look at on our at ricksteves.com, if you go to our climate smart section, the first thing it says up on the top is, if you're a tour organizer, steal this program and do not credit us, just use it, you know, I mean, and it's nothing to brag about. It's, it's, it's nothing heroic. It's just, I wish we were taxed for our carbon. And then that money would pay for our carbon. That's mitigation. But that doesn't work in the United States because it's not good for business in the short term. Of course, it's good for business in the long term. It lets us have business in the long term. But in the short term, that's what rules in the United States because I think corporations have a legal obligation to profit maximize in the short term for their stockholders. And you could even have an idealistic CEO. But if the board doesn't like it because they're not getting their money to their shareholders, then you got to change your tune. So I just think... This is an opportunity to raise awareness of that, and that's important. Well, I was going to ask your advice on this topic because I feel like, well, there might be some people listening now who are in a position where, let's say they want to speak out or they want to, or they can be an employee, a business owner, it doesn't really matter. And they know that if they do kind of stand up for something, whether it's a political belief or some other thing related to their to their organization that there could be backlash. You're an opinionated guy, which I appreciate, and you're not afraid to share those opinions. And you know that's come over time, I suppose, throughout your career. But I'm sure there's there's moments where it's like, uh, like, you know, do I need to talk about this publicly? Am I going to lose customers over this? How much backlash is this going to cause? I mean, yeah, just I don't know. You can use personal examples if you want, but I guess you know you've been in the thick of this for <laughs> quite some time now, being a high profile figure in travel and 
you know, not being afraid to, you know, support certain issues and things like that, that can be tricky for some people that they're afraid they're going to lose everything. I just wondering if you have some advice or wisdom to share around that. Well, first of all, you can be the conventional tour guide and let's just put it in terms of what I do. I'm a tour guide and the standard wisdom. And I would think it's fair to say almost every tour company tells their guides this stay away from religion, stay away from politics and don't talk football, soccer, <laughs> You know, because that just yeah. causes you just That's probably make a him, smart you, way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just you don't why want go fights there. right in Why that. go there? You don't want fights. So, and, you know, I've got a hundred guides, wonderful guides. They're all self employed or what do you call it? Independent contractors in Europe on top of the hundred people that I have here in my office in Seattle. And uh, we have an annual summit. It's been in person for years, but during COVID, it's been virtual where we get everybody together and we talk about what is a Rick Steves tour guide. And I say, one thing we are is uh, we encourage our guides to talk religion, talk politics, and talk football. You know, but you got to do it respectfully. It's not I'm right and you're wrong. It's not America screws up and we're smart. You know, you can't America bash and get away with it as a tour guide. But you can share. You know, why do we pay such high taxes? And why do politicians in Norway not have to brag about tax breaks? Uh, there's trust in institutions. Uh, you know, how, what about um, old age respect for seniors? What about health care? You know, what about immigration issues? I mean, we're all, we all got the same issues. Um, so as a traveler, you can take the easy road and just, you know, dumb it down. And it's, uh, you know, frequent flyer miles and uh, duty-free shopping and what's the power of your sunscreen. Or you can uh, raise the bar and talk about stuff that matters. The art for me is to talk about stuff that matters in a way that stimulates and challenges people uh, without alienating them. And I just did it, Jason, out of kind of out of boredom. I was doing the same tour over and over again with wonderful Americans for 30 years. And I, I realized after, uh, you know, maybe 10 years, I want to I get more out of this tour. I want to make it a life-changing experience. And it just made it more complicated for me. And I screw up and I fell on my face a few times and I pissed a few people off. But I got pretty good at, of not abusing the bully pulpit. Because when you've got 25 paying customers on your bus for two weeks and you get to hold the mic, it can be abusive. And I, I could very easily just abuse that. And it would, if I was a participant, especially if I was dragged on that tour by my wife who insisted that I go and I would rather stay home and go fishing. And here I am listening to some kid talk about Europeans and their healthcare, you know, that can be really a lousy kind of vacation, but it also can be done in a way that's really fun and inspirational and not threatening. So that's our challenge as tour guides and teachers is to open the door so our travelers can broaden their perspectives and, you know, culture shock is an interesting thing. People generally think of culture shock as something you want to minimize. It's a bad thing. I think it's a constructive thing. Culture shock is the growing pains of a broadening perspective, and it needs to be curated. And that's what a good guide does. And that's what we do at, at our Rick Steves tours. And that's why a lot of guides would rather not mess with that. They would rather work for another tour company and have uh, a token income and make their money off of getting a kickback on shopping and, and extra excursions sold, which is the standard equation or operating procedure for most uh, tour companies to pay their guides. And what we have is we have our guides are paid up front. There's no tipping. There's no kickbacks on shopping or options sold and stuff because it's all included and there's no group shopping. And we tell our guides, we're going to stand by you. 
if you want to talk politics and if people give you bad feedback because of that, when people do their surveys after their tour, we're going to be impressed that you took the risk and we'll work on how to do it better. It makes the work more noble and more impactful. And I'm all over transformational travel. And even Europe, which is pretty tame, can be a springboard for a global perspective. And it just it's just, we're all teachers. We're all caring people. We love travel for good reasons. And we want to share it. We want to be evangelical about the value of travel. Uh, so that's just a, it's just a teaching skill. It's a tour guiding skill. And I, I enjoy it. I love how travel exposes you to alternative to solutions that have been befuddling us back home for so long. So that's what I enjoy doing as a tour guide. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I was reading in the New York Times profile that you would occasionally show up early on with tour groups and not have a, a place booked. So they would have that sort of mild panic of like, oh, no, I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Because like, it's those exact types of scenarios that taught me some of the best lessons about myself. Like, all right, I guess I got to find a park to sleep. And then I meet some random people. And then we rent a car and go on the road. You know, all these crazy things happen. I'm just wondering, because you've been traveling so much for so long and leading the groups and, and all of the work you do. What do you do to get out of your comfort zone? And why is that important? Well, to get out of your comfort zone, I, I like to say, you got to make a choice, Mazatlan or Managua. That's uh, an example of Central America, for example. Uh, you know, Mexico and Central America, there's all sorts of um, beach resorts. You can go to Belize and not know Belize and just stay out on the Keys and snorkel. Uh, you can go to Mexico and, and, and just... You know, I mean, I, I was, I use this example. I was, I was fried a long time ago. Um, I needed a vacation. Uh, our whole family wanted to, we're just dreaming about a pristine stretch of tropical beach swept free of local riffraff, just us and our white friends enjoying this tropical wonderland with plastic bands on our wrists. So we didn't even need to dirty our fingers with the local coins. We wanted another margarita. It was going to be wonderful, wonderful vacation. And I mean, people cringe when I talk about that, but that's what Mazatlan and Cancun and Yucatan are, basically. And uh, I was going to do that because, you know, I, I can enjoy the beach. And then the same week that we were planning our family vacation, my friends in El Salvador said, hey, it's the 25th anniversary of the assassination of Archbishop Oscar Romero, and there's going to be a wonderful demonstration and a march, and you should be there. And I'm really into Central American uh, struggles and peace and civil war and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and I told my family, I'm not going to be any fun on the beach. I got to go to El Salvador and march with those people. And um, we canceled our family vacation. I went to El Salvador and it was a life-changing experience, literally, a walking with thousands of people in solidarity with people who had survived a horrible civil war, who's, um, who's Martin Luther King, uh, who's... Uh, you know, who's Nelson Mandela was assassinated. He said, I'll be shot because I'm standing with the people. And in mass, their, their beloved priest was, was gunned down and he rose again in his people. And 25 years after that tragedy, I got to march with those people. And, uh, you know, it's a, there's lots I could talk about, but basically that was good travel. It wasn't as comfortable as Mazatlan, but it was no more expensive and no more risky, and it changed my life. Um, and we have those opportunities. We can choose in our travels. Where are you going to go? I just think, as Americans, it's really good to get out of our comfort zone. Um, you know, I'm very committed to helping Americans better understand Islam, uh, because a lot of Americans are 
Islamophobic. And if you go to Turkey and you have a great time in Turkey, your whole approach to a billion people on this planet who are Muslims changes. And that is a good travel experience. You know, if you can go home uh, with a little less afraid. I always joke uh, when I was, um, when our my boy Andy, who's 35 years old now, when he was like four years old or something like that, and we'd have grandma and grandpa over, my dad was afraid of Islam. And this is back in the days when there was all sorts of terrorism kind of concerns and everything. I taught my son to go, when we said, you know, thanks for the food out of prayer, for him to finish the prayer by going, Allah, 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 <laughs> just to freak out my dad. Uh, of course, Allah is just the Arabic way to say God, you know. So, um, and Andy would do that and my dad would get tweaked. You know, my dad was the, the guy who, when he took me to the airport, when I was flying down to El Salvador for my first time, he, he, at the airport, he said, son, don't be duped. He didn't say have a good trip. He said, don't be duped because he knew I was going down there and I was going to learn things that would challenge my comfort with American policies. And that might make my life more complicated. And I always go back to the notion that Thomas Jefferson wrote that travel makes a person wiser if less happy. You know, I, I think if you just want to be happy, go to Cancun. But if you want to, if you want to be more connected and clued in, do a little reality travel also. You know, Europe is a tame destination, but for me, that's my heritage and that's the springboard for world travel. And we work really hard in our guidebooks, in our TV shows, and in our tours to get people a little bit out of their comfort zone. And hopefully, they fly home from uh, uh, Europe and and they're going to want to go beyond. I mean, you were in Bulgaria and, and you went up into the mountains to Rila Monastery. And what a great experience if you've been to... If you've been to Edinburgh many times, and if you and if you know Paris like the back of your hand, try Bulgaria. Why not? You mentioned uh, your dad there, so I was going to ask you what was the best lesson that your parents taught you that sticks with you today. My parents, I think they taught me you can work hard and succeed and prosper if you produce things of value. You've got to produce things of value. You don't just game the system. Uh, because if everybody games the system, there's going to be no system to game. And I've had that weird notion that I just, I want to be a successful you know, businessman. I'm a good capitalist. I got plenty of money. But what drives me is producing things that have value. And then, you know, in any clever way I can, get them out there. I just do not like schemes, clever ideas to cash in. I don't like, you know, creating a business and then just selling it. I, I've created something that I believe in and there's no way on earth I'd ever sell it. And I'm having a tough time now being 67 years old, reminding myself, hey, a lot of your friends are retiring and I'm just, I feel like I'm just amping up, you know, I'm just loving what I'm doing. We're glad to hear that, Rick, all the ah, Rick yeah. fans out there. Well, my dad was, my dad was mission driven. My dad was, a, uh, he had a company called Steve's Sound of Music. And what he wanted to do was give people in Seattle the best sound of music through these fine pianos. And I was just inspired. Now that I look back, I was inspired on his, uh, the fact that he'd found his niche. What a beautiful thing to find your niche. And, and I've found my niche um, as a travel teacher. I loved you know, to, to help people get the, the Steve's uh, experience of travel. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day. I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. 
But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks. So they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. You mentioned uh, being mission-driven, which you seem to be very much be about. And I guess, you know, using the sort of canceling the family vacation example, I wanted to ask you your advice on... Maybe this is like a personal question because I have two small kids and, you know, you have that personal need to, to travel, to create, to build and run a business, you know, certain things you want to do to fulfill yourself, self-improvement, whatever. And then you have your responsibilities at home. That's a tough balance as um, I'm discovering. And I'm just wondering how that's been for you, what kind of uh, advice you have around balancing you know, your family responsibilities with that need to kind of fulfill your mission or, or develop yourself in, in different ways, travel. Yeah. If there is a regret in my life, it is my underperformance or my my lousy job of being there for my family as much as I could have been. You know, I was a loving father and all that, but I had a mission and I still do. It took a toll on our family. How would I have done it differently? I honestly don't think I would do it differently. It's just, I'm kind of realistic about you only have so many, so much bandwidth. And if you're going to do something, you can't be the greatest dad and chase your mission as a teacher or whatever your calling is. My calling is to help Americans get out there and explore the world. And it's uh, all consuming. I've got a great relationship with my kids now. Uh, but um, I think... Um, when I was, when they were little, work was a four-letter word, and uh, I was never there for the soccer games or anything like that. Which I'm sad about that, and uh, I'm I'm sure you know I got a divorce uh, a long time ago, and it was because yeah, it's because I I I uh, was too excited about taking the lessons from my travels and employing them here as a person who really cares about politics and so on. You have to make choices. You can't get more than you have 
energy and time to do. And uh, if you set the bar high in your work and your personal mission, I don't think you're a person who's got a balanced life. And I don't, I don't recommend it, but it, it was my choice and uh, it came with a cost. Well, I've got this philosophy as a person of faith. If you believe in a God, you know we're all children of God. And when you travel, you get to know the family. And your brother and sister is a beautiful thing, but from a big perspective, we're all brothers and sisters because we're all created by the same force, God, whatever you want to call it. And suffering across the street is suffering from an intellectual point of view, suffering in the family, suffering across the street or suffering across the sea, it's all the same. And I have a, a, an empathy for suffering across the sea at the expense of suffering across the street, maybe. And that's an interesting challenge. You know, I'm fine with it. It's just, we're privileged people. Uh, you know, we have first world problems and I'm tuned into less privileged people who have developing world problems at the expense of some of my empathy here in, in our privileged world. When my wife was struggling with this, she said, I remember she said, you're a stranger to family and, and family to strangers. That was, that was the case against me. And it was a good case, you know. I was family to strangers and stranger to family, something like that. She was right. It's just a life choice you make. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing so openly. That's a tough, uh, yeah, it's tough. tough question there. Yeah. What is an artwork that best represents your life philosophy? Now, I know there's a montage <laughs> of artwork going through your mind right now. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Because <laughs> I've, I've spent the last two years working on... Um, the uh, TV show we just finished, which is a six-hour miniseries called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. And it was the greatest project I've ever You had been fun in. with it, it huh? Oh, it was great. It was 20 years in the making. Every time we'd, been, we'd be filming, Simon, my producer, and I would say, well, let's get a little more of that because we'll use it in the art show. Let's get a little more of that. And then we had this huge archive. And then COVID hit and we couldn't travel. And we had to scuttle all of our episodes. We're going to Poland or going to Iceland. We're going to do that later this year, but we planned to do it in 2020. And we just said, okay, let's just do the art series. So it was uh, two years of working, a 90-page script. And um, oh God, it was just beautiful. And I, I've watched that show so many times over the process and I just never get tired of looking at the great art of Western civilization. And then your question was... What is a piece of art or an artwork that best represents your life philosophy? I think if you look at David, you're looking into the eyes of Renaissance man. Have we talked about David yet? I, I don't think so. A little bit. Did, did I talk about it earlier? Yeah. And you're looking into the eyes of Renaissance man. And, and as I always like to say, you know, you're looking there at uh, humanism. And I, I just love the idea of humanism, you know, Stop bowing down in church all the day, all day long. Recognize the talents and the energy and the skills God gives you and get out there and change the world. Um, I love that. And when I look at David, that's what I think. That's a beautiful piece of art. There were so many beautiful moments when we were filming. And we had a, a little ritual. I have an ethic when I make a TV show. We never shoot anything that other people can't do themselves. Our travelers. It's public television. I always joke it's not lifestyles of the rich and envious. It's lifestyles of you and me. It's people's travel on people's TV. You know, it's a pledge drive hit. But the one thing I do love is occasionally we have to see something when it's closed because they won't let a big camera in there when it's open to the public. So I get to be all alone in the Sun Chapelle in Paris. 
all alone in the most beautiful Gothic space in Europe. Can you imagine? And I get to be all alone in front of Mona Lisa and all alone. I was just all alone a few months ago in front of uh, Botticelli's uh, Primavera, all alone in The Last Supper in Milano of Leonardo and all of these all alone moments. And you know you're shooting it with your beautiful camera and your wonderful cameraman. You're going to edit together and the beautiful thing and share with the United States in every city on TV. And it's such a turn on for a, a person who loves art and culture and loves guiding. And we have this moment. We all, when we're just done, when we're all alone with this masterpiece, we look at each other and go, I need a cigarette. None of us smoke <laughs> cigarettes. But it's kind of like, I guess you're supposed to have a cigarette after great sex, right? Yeah, right. And I just feel like a cigarette. I want to sit on the bed <laughs> yeah. and smoke a great cigarette. Uh, and we have that cigarette moment after the great sex of being with that yeah. art all yeah. alone. <laughs> with the camera rolling. With the camera rolling. Wow. Nope. That's one thing that is one of the great joys of... Uh, of my work is to be able to have the camera rolling and, and to give that art context to give any, anybody can look at a Botticelli painting. Anybody can look at a Leonardo and, and they can talk about the Da Vinci code or they can talk about, you know, how big is his penis? They can talk about all sorts of stuff, but are they going to appreciate what the artist was all about? Are they going to appreciate what that meant when it was made? Are they going to appreciate why, so much energy was put into that. I mean, oh, it's amazing to think that, you know, the king back then, 700 years ago when they made the Saint-Chapelle in Paris, I understand he spent more for the crown of thorns than he spent on the building that he, he uh, invested to, to hold it, the Saint-Chapelle. It's a big deal to have the crown of thorns and uh, to have an adequate place to, to put it and show it off. That's that Saint-Chapelle. Well, we're not that excited about the crown of thorns these days but when you walk up that dark spiral medieval staircase in paris on the Ile de la cité and you emerge from the darkness of that spiral staircase and you step into that glorious gothic lantern of light and you're bathed in all that beautiful sunshine that has gone through all of that colored glass and you're surrounded by all those beautiful stories and you think of what went into building this and what a treasure it is that it was built during the career of one architect. So it's it was started and finished with the same plan. And to be able to then share that, either as a tour guide or as a guidebook writer or as a TV producer, that's the joy of my work. I love the eloquence ah. with which you describe these scenes. And what a, what a gift to have that those memories to draw on, you know? I mean, just yeah. what a gift. Oh, I'm, you know, I can't remember my my neighbor's name, to be honest, on, where, on this dead end street I live in here in Edmonds. And I try, but I, I have a tough time. But there's certain things I can remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you don't smoke cigarettes, but marijuana, that's okay. That's on the yes list of smoking, right? Well, for me, high is a place. Yeah. And sometimes I want to go there. <laughs> and anytime my government says I can't go somewhere, there better be a good reason, whether it's Cuba or Palestine, Iran, or uh, a little bit of marijuana. I've felt very, very strongly about the uh, tragedy of uh, the prohibition against marijuana for many reasons. I've had some beautiful moments thanks to marijuana. Why shouldn't I be able to enjoy that uh, as a responsible adult? I have spent a lot of time and money working to legalize adult recreational use of marijuana. And what I'm doing is bringing a European sensibility to the American discussion. 
And I'm just blaming my American friends or my European friends for my crazy ideas about marijuana. And uh, I'm talking common sense to a frightened American public. And I can frame it for any audience, whether it's conservative or liberal. And what's one of my favorite things to do, Jason, is every two years go on the political warpath and uh, help in a few states that are trying to legalize marijuana. So every two years, 20, 2012, we legalized marijuana in Washington State uh, in Colorado, the first of any places that had really legalized marijuana. The Dutch stopped arresting pot smokers, but they had the gray area, you know, where they didn't deal with uh, wholesaling and distribution. It's just wink, wink, don't tell me about that. And they took the uh, crime off of the streets and they let people um, buy and smoke marijuana in these coffee shops. It was a smart, pragmatic thing because they had a more serious thing to deal with, which, which was hard drug addiction, and they successfully did it. The Portuguese legalized the consumption of all drugs, not because they wanted people smoking pot, but because they wanted to deal with their hard drug addicted population, and it was very effective. Today we're losing as many people as we lost in Vietnam to opioid overdoses, and we're still locking up people for smoking pot when we could have credibility and deal with the serious problem. So, you know, every two years we did Washington back in 2012, and then 2014 it was, I think, Oregon and Alaska. 2016 it was um, Maine and Michigan, and 2018 it was a couple other states, and 2020 a couple other states. I just, every two years, this is what I do, and it's, I'm just using my celebrity as a travel writer to share a European sensibility to this in a country that has uh, got a racism problem, a black market problem, a mass incarceration problem, a lack of truthfulness problem. There are so many reasons for us to take the crime out of the equation and get wise about marijuana. And now more than half of the population in our country, it's not only legal for medicinal purposes, but it's legal for recreational purposes. I'm the chair of the board at Normal, and I'm working really hard. That's one of my little sidelines is to further this discussion. It's the value of travel. And I mean, it can be other things too. I mean, third world debt relief, um, climate change, uh, um, you know, uh, water, immigration issues, war and peace, uh, the importance of uh, empowering women, uh, the importance of uh, child nutrition. There are so many exciting things you can learn through your travels, and it's so vivid. And uh, why not? You know, you can make a difference. I wanted to bring it up. I'm in camp. Legalize it. I don't know why the Norwegians are so uptight about it, but... Yeah, Norway is quite regressive that way, isn't it? Very, very uptight about it. Yeah. But I remember I was listening to a, an Alan Watts talk, and, and he said the phrase, adventures in consciousness, and that resonated yeah. with me because that yeah. was a, that's a different way to travel without leaving your home in, in some ways, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I, I like that phrase. I'll, I think it was a good good way to put it. Yeah. I always, when I was a kid, when I was starting out my business, I would always go, travel, the last great source of legal adventure. I used to say that all the time. It's a kind of a allusion to the fact that, you know, you have an adventure in smoking pot, but that's illegal. Like ayahuasca, for example, and some of these psychedelics are a pretty popular yeah. thing to incorporate in your travels now for a certain yeah. Yeah. traveler, I guess. Is that? I know it. I'm not I don't think I'm brave enough to try that. It's that, that actually, I'd love to do it. I've had friends and loved ones who have done it and it sounds like it's amazing. And I don't even smoke pot that much. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm an advocate. And that was the, that was our, our trick in Washington state when we legalized it. We had the dream team of people that were promoting it and it wasn't a bunch of potheads, you know, uh, it was people that just were, they cared about society, but there's a, a growing sensibility of just mind expanding stuff. I mean, 
every time I experiment with mushrooms, I just go, yeah, baby. But travel, it's just, you know, first time I ever smoked pot, I was in Afghanistan. And uh, it just, it was great in, in that context. In India, Nepal, Afghanistan, it's it was a cheap form of recreation, I guess, and also a, a kind of a religious thing. But when you have that kind of a foundation, and then you come home and you realize there's a bunch of mostly poor people and people of color and doing hard time in prison because of this. It's just inexcusable. It's just like crazy. It's only right to speak out. and But you need to do it in a thoughtful way, respecting people's fears and remembering that not everybody has had the exposure to these other more sensible, in my perspective, approaches to it. And that's a fun thing about travel. I have a guest membership of a couple cannabis clubs in Spain. And, you know, every country in Europe has a different approach to marijuana. And in Spain, you cannot sell it, but you can grow it. And people don't all want to spend a lot of time growing marijuana. So they join these clubs and collectively they grow marijuana and they pay dues to be in the club. And then they go to the clubhouse and they smoke their harvest. You know, um, that's just a way to get around the laws in Spain. Different countries have different ways to do it. The Dutch have their famous coffee shops. We're ahead of Europe now because we just say, okay, let's just treat it like uh, other soft drugs, alcohol and tobacco. You're, you're doing a good job apparently because it's, it's, spread, it's spreading around. Well, it's, um, you know, it's funny because uh, my staff is going, Rick, be careful. Don't, I mean, we have to remember we, we have an image and we have a brand and you don't want to sully our brand. I've had no problem at all speaking out on this for the, for 20 years. Quite, it used to be courageous. Now it's nothing. But I remember every once in a while people would come up to me and say, Rick Steves, we know what you think about marijuana and we're not going to use your guidebooks and we're not going to take your tours. And all I can think is Europe's going to be more fun without you. You know, I would use that little joke in my lectures and it's just kind of reminds people it's a, there, it's, there's a, it's a silly, tragic yet silly thing in our society and we can learn through our travels and we can be better for it. So it's just one of many, many examples, Jason, of the value of travel and, uh, you know, when you've, when you've hiked in the Alps and when you've had, when you've learned about the, the concept of a binamento in Italy, we just wrote a book called Italy for Food Lovers, and uh, you just gain an appreciation. A binamento is, it's matching the textures and the flavor of two totally different things. Cantaloupe wrapped in a thin slice of salty prosciutto. Why did I like that? Why did I love that as a kid? Honeydew melon or cantaloupe wrapped in a thin, salty slice of prosciutto. That was a binamento. I never knew the word. I mean, I didn't know it was a concept. I didn't know it wasn't just accidental. That's all just calculated in that culture, learned over time. And all of these things we can learn. When we go to Norway, where you live, we can learn things. And we can take those lessons home. And that makes travel really uh, a transformational thing. You know, anybody in travel likes to, seems like, throw on that word transformational travel. But how do you actually make tra travel transformational? That's the trick. And what I want to do as a travel writer and a tour organizer and a TV host is to help Americans be changed in a good way by their travel. Okay. I promise we're going to finish in a minute, but I have to know the answer to this one. First of all, how the hell do you get so much work done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of work done. I'm very productive at night because during the day I'm running a business and doing all sorts of just the whole day goes by, as you can imagine, just doing little things. A lot of people have um, 
ADD, attention deficit disorder. I have ASD, attention surplus disorder. I can just focus on something when it's travel, and I just love it. So I get on a uh, jag, and I'm just getting this done. And then I've got wonderful people I collaborate with. I can, uh, you know, I've got a lot of people that write better than me, and we collaborate. And it's, it's. I mean, I haven't written. There's 80 books with Rick Steves on the cover, and there's a lot of very good travelers and a lot of very good writers that are involved in that. So I've learned over the years to. Um, partner with really good people and i'm thankful for that i've got a mission i want to amplify my teaching it's all about creating content and then amplifying it and uh, that's what we do we create content and we amplify it our our profit is not how much money is in the bank at the end of the year it's how many travels have we impacted how many travelers have had a better experience because of our work and i love to make money but i'm not focused on that i'm focused on how many trips can i impact and if I'm honestly focused on that, there's going to be better business coming out of it. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. I wish more business people realized that, you know. It's a more holistic approach to business, right? I mean, ah, it's, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. All right. You have a teleportation device. Can you describe your day from morning to bedtime? I, I thought this would be a good way to kind of get some of your sort of favorite moments, things when you're traveling and. You know, you can wake up, you can have breakfast any place okay. in the world. You can wow. you can then jet and do some activity. You can get in your teleportation device and, and go have lunch somewhere. You can, you know, that that's sort of the vibe here. So where am I gonna do it? What's the day? Yeah, what's the day? You, you where do you oh, wake man. up? Where do where do you go for breakfast? Where do you okay. spend your afternoon? Where do you spend well, your evening? Okay, well let me think of this. This is your dream day where you where you don't have to get on any planes, but you can instantly I, oh, take yourself I love there. that. What a great idea. I'm going to write an article <laughs> about this. This is funny. Um, well, I think I would, I'd get up and I always have a hotel that's in a good location, meaning uh, in a town, in the center of a town that doesn't have a lot of traffic where you open up your window. I love to open the the shutters, you know, those creaky shutters that are in old European buildings. And sometimes, you know, you, you lay in bed with your eyes closed and you don't know where you are. Because you every every couple of days you're in a different place, and I think, where am I now? Oh yeah, good. And then you get up and you open the shutters, and the birds are chirping because there's no traffic in this downtown zone, and you're in Toledo, let's say, uh, in Spain, the historic, artistic, and spiritual capital of Spain, not the political capital, which is an hour north in Madrid. And then you go down to a hole in the wall restaurant, a place you venture away from your comfortable hotel restaurant for breakfast, and you find a place where. All the old grizzled old timers are um, dunking their churros into their pudding like hot chocolate. And you just have a gut bomb of a breakfast. Okay, then, then all of a sudden I'm in Copenhagen and I leave the hotel and I like, like bicycles, like horses at a hitching rack. The bikes are parked outside of the hotel. And I hop on my bike, which I borrow from the hotel, and I bike through the town feeling the wind in my hair and marveling at how they create a beach on their uh, harbor front by moving in sand and, and everybody is settling in with the lounge chairs and the palm trees and boxes. And then I get out to Christiania and I wander through a town that is a squatter community with a bunch of hippies that have a, a barter economy. And I go shopping in the little market there and I just uh, enjoy some people watching. And then after lunch, I find myself on top of a ridge in the Swiss Alps. 
and uh, I'm tight roping on this ridge. And on one side, I've got lakes stretching all the way to Germany. And on the other side, I've got the most incredible mountain panorama anywhere, the Eigermonk and Jungfrau. And ahead of me, I hear the long legato tones of an Alphorn announcing that the helicopter stocked mountain hut is open. It's just around the corner and the coffee schnapps is on. So I, I, I walk on that ridge until I get to that little helicopter stocked mountain hut and I have my coffee schnapps. And then I get back down and I'm on the Italian Riviera because of your magic little machine. And the Italian Riviera, there's five villages nestled into the mountains where the Alps plunge into the sea finally. And uh, each town is traffic free because it's connected only by a train and by trails. And I hike into my favorite town and all of a sudden I realize I've got some work to do. So I need to check all the restaurants in that town and I love my work. So I dedicate the evening to visiting all these restaurants and checking out which ones are good and running down a few of the recommendations from people who said, you got to check out this, dropping a couple restaurants, adding a couple restaurants. When the evening of restaurant work is almost done and I have only a window of time to look at the restaurants because I got to look at them when there's people actually eating there. You can't judge a restaurant unless there's people eating there. And in Europe, they eat late. If you go to one of the restaurants at seven o'clock, it's a tourist trap. It's filled with Americans. But if you come back at nine o'clock, it's filled with locals and you realize, yes, it's a good restaurant. So you, at the end of the day, just when things are winding down, you zip back to the favorite restaurant of all those that you visited and you say hi, hi to the chef and just give me whatever you want me to eat. And he will whip up this favorite little dish at the end and I'll have that. And then when I'm all done with that, I walk home, it's a starry night and all the chefs that have been working so hard are done. Their staff is cleaning things up, but they've done the hard work and they're sitting there on a stool smoking a cigarette with their little glass of what kind of kind of liquor and they're looking out at the Mediterranean. And you look out at the Mediterranean and you see lights dipping in and out of sight. And these are the lanterns from the anchovy boats. And you can see them out there doing this time-honored ritual of attracting the little fish with the big lanterns and netting them. And you know they're going to be in the market in the next morning and then on your plate the next night. And you see all the chefs gazing out at the sea. They've done their work. They've made so many travelers happy. You know you're going to have a good day tomorrow. And you walk home to your beautiful little guest house. And you snuggle into your bed. You open the window so you can hear the surf. And you go to bed knowing you're going to do it again tomorrow. <laughs> That sounds like an epic day and one what I would like day. to live. That's an incredible day, man. Please write that article. Yeah. When you were describing the day, I did want to say thanks because because of your advice on my first backpacking trip, I went to Gimmelwald, that small oh, mountain yeah. hostel up there. And that was like where I really fell in love with hiking, which became yeah. a huge part of my life. So thank you, Rick. And also Cinque Terre in you know late 90s. That was a good time. I think it's a bit less crowded than it is now. And, and that was another yeah. one of your recommendations. So, uh, I mean, uh. you've done a lot for me personally in my own travels and also, you know, as far as my work inspiring me to, to kind of do this type of work and seeing that there is some kind of path for it. So I, I just want to say a, a sincere thanks and gratitude for you and your work and for taking the time to speak with me uh, today. I really do appreciate it. And and listen, I mean, it, you're coming to Norway to do some research. I mean, 
I know you're a busy guy, but you know we could go have some fifteen dollar beers and you I'd know, love get to, to see town, you. you know, you're, so, you're in Oslo, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Uh, Eric, Eric Demond's no longer around, so I'll, I'd love to. Hang, I'd love to. I was going to say hang out with you. I'd love to have you join me as I do my work for a couple hours. Yeah, uh, that would be that fun. would be wonderful. Well, if you if you find yeah. time, please let me know. And oh, uh, let's do that. Thank you again very much. I really truly appreciate it. Well, Jason, I've enjoyed every minute of this interview, and thanks for having me on. And best wishes with your work. And, as I like to say, uh, keep on traveling. Thanks. Cheers. There you have it. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rick. Thank you once again to Mr. Rick Steves for coming on the show and for his team for helping to organize this conversation. I'll leave you with a couple of my favorite quotes from Rick to wrap this up first. I did promise at the top I would share with you my favorite all-time Rick Steves destination recommendation, and you heard me mention it briefly in the show. The Mountain Hostel in Gimmelwald, Switzerland, a small village. I remember taking the cable car up there on my first backpacking trip around Europe and actually running into a Rick Steves guide who had a small tour group with her. I think I asked her for her card. I was thinking, maybe I'll get a job guiding these tours one day. Who knows? Anyway, got to the mountain hostel. I don't remember what it cost at the time. It was somewhere around 10 or 15 bucks. And I think I arrived at night. So when I woke up the next day and looked out of my window from my cheap hostel bed in terms of cost, beautiful view of the Alps. And there was nothing really to do up there except be out in nature. And that was my first real big mountain hiking. And I I went out and I found some hiking trails and I got some recommendations from the mountain hostel and just spent days hiking out in the Alps. Didn't even have the proper gear, no hiking gear or anything. I didn't know much about hiking in big mountains, but just completely fell in love with hiking and didn't stop since. I mean, I moved to Colorado to be near big mountains. There was a lot of reasons why this one visit to the mountain hostel kind of informed parts of my life and my future travels because I fell so deeply in love with just being out in nature and hiking in just such grand scenery. And I'm just so grateful that I had that moment, those days at the mountain hostel in Gimmelwald and... Thanks to Rick for introducing that destination to me. There are, of course, some other ones. I'm going to share them in the newsletter this week. If you want to sign up, zerototravel.com slash newsletter. You can always keep in touch off the podcast, and I encourage you to let me know uh, who you are, where you're at, what you're up to. Always great to meet members of this listening community. Get in touch anytime. i got a voicemail box. You can click on the link in the show notes and leave a message. You can email me, jason at zerototravel.com. Send me a message on Instagram, whatever. It's all good. Thank you so very much for spending your time listening to this show. And I look forward to seeing you next week. I'll leave you with a quote, a couple quotes from Rick Steves. First one, self-consciousness kills communication. And one on travel to send you on your way. Travel is rich with learning opportunities and the ultimate souvenir is a broader perspective. Thanks for listening and... Have a great rest of your day. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.